Welcome to the DFD, a podcast dedicated to all things dairy farming. Each episode, we chat with industry leaders who share insights and their experiences into the dairy business. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to the DFD podcast. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer. It's been a been a bit of time here since I've uh, put a podcast out, I think so June, so it's it's great to get back and uh, get some information out to the listeners. And I'm super excited today. Uh, it's corn season. I know in the next couple of weeks we're going to be uh, diving into some corn silage here, so I thought it'd be great to have uh, Bill Mahana back on the podcast. So Bill's the Global Nutrition Sciences Manager for Pioneer and also an adjunct professor at Iowa State. So good morning, Bill. How are things in Iowa today? We're getting some rain today, Keith. So that's that's good news. We uh, we really need it here in the middle part of the state and the west part of the state. We're really lush in the northeast, but uh, the rest of the state, this is was a welcome rain this week, uh, about two inches. Yeah, it sounds like uh, we were just talking quick before you got on the um, podcast. It sounds like you've had a very similar summer to what it's been here in uh, southwestern Ontario. It's been pretty. Uh, it was really dry through June and July, and then August. It's kind of seems like we've been getting some rain is pretty sporadic you know summer rain patterns but uh corn looks for the most part pretty good a lot of short corn this year yeah and uh, i don't know like are you seeing the same thing in that neck of the woods too or yeah where it's dry that's what we get therefore you know i i I would anticipate that the fiber digestibility is going to be pretty good on the corn silage this year because we do know that the growing environment during the vegetative stage of the plant if it's drier than normal plants will be shorter but usually the fiber digestibility is is really good so i I would anticipate that the corn silage will will feed pretty well this year and being a shorter plant if we got you know had pretty good pollination and then timely rains as we get into the reproductive phase of the plant um we should have, you know, good starch levels and even more starch because it's, you know, we don't have as much stover diluting it. So. Yeah. And I'm thinking, uh, just listening to some people talking some ear counts and we're still looking over 200 bushel and like, there's lots of places where the corn's, you know, not six feet tall or it is just at six feet. And, uh, there's some other stuff where the corn's a little bit taller. So I think we've, uh, I think we're in for a pretty good crop and we need it because our hay yields have been, um, depending on where you are in Ontario, but for the most part, it's been pretty dry right across the thing. So our hay yields are are down. So we're going to have to put some forage up for for these cows for the winter. So, <laughs> so are you seeing more? Are you seeing a trend, Keith, even in Ontario to higher corn silage inclusion rates in the diet? I haven't haven't been up there for a couple of years because of both of our governments and uh, COVID. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So have you, uh, are you seeing that trend, or is it still is still maybe half corn silage, half haylage, or dry hay as a as a typical forage component? I would say we're kind of gearing like there's a lot of herds that you know we're talking sixty per sixty to seventy percent of dry matter uh, coming from corn silage. Now, okay. in saying that, the protein price has been pretty high, and we came off a year last year where we had a lot of good inventory on hay, so. I would say last year we were probably, you know, a lot of places were in that 60%, 55%, 60%, some even 50-50. Um, but I would say typically we were on the we're on the higher side with corn silage. And then protein prices, yeah, they affect that a little bit. But yeah, um, I think in general that's kind of kind of where we're headed. Now you guys see the same stuff down. 
down through the Midwest, right? Yeah. You know, alfalfa acres have been declining in the States for the last 25 years. And it's, I just read something in, I think, Progressive Dairy and, um, by one of the guys who, that works for a, a alfalfa seed company. And, and he had some current data and it looks like new seedings are down again. So uh, this last year. So, yeah, it's, I, I think we're seeing that trend. It's just more and more corn silage. And, and even to your point about protein, if we can feed a lot of really highly digestible stover and corn silage and the starch, we're driving a lot of microbial biomass. So really we're generating yeah. a lot of our own protein needs mm-hmm. uh, in those, in those high starch diets. I mean, even Cornell's done a lot of work. You'll see, you'll see high corn silage diets where they're only, you know, 14 and a half to 15 and a half percent crude protein in them. So, you know, there's a lot coming from that microbial biomass if it's the right kind of corn silage. Yeah. And I mean, we don't have to, I don't think we have to have these 17, 18% diets anymore. There's lots of stuff where I think it was two years ago, I ran a herd at, you know, 15% for most of the winter making tr- a tremendous amount of milk. Now they had some really good forage. And, and I think the trend here in Ontario is there's a lot more talk about uh, some of these alternative forage and cover crops. So your triticales, your rise, your OP blends, stuff like that. So you know, trying to get those incorporated into the rations is, has been positive. The only thing is, is like, we don't have the scale, I guess, to make, to manage multiple faces of bunks or multiple silos open at the same time. So that's a little bit uh, challenging, or I think maybe we'd see more, but uh, I think corn silage is, uh, corn silage is, would be our number one forage crop here in Ontario. And I think, yeah, hay yields are down, but I think just consistency and yield like we'll yeah. swing a little bit every year just depending on moisture but in general like there hasn't been too many areas in Ontario where we've had crop failure uh growing corn and we've had lots of I don't know if you call it crop failure with hay but uh like it doesn't rain you don't get hay yep and winter kill you can't ever really predict that and yeah we just actually it's funny you mentioned the winter kill because we had a lot of winter kill this year like we were super wet last year like right from about the middle of July into you know, Christmas time, January, it rained quite a bit. And I think that the, uh, the alfalfa didn't overwinter well in super wet soil. And we had some free, a little bit of freeze thaw, but mostly cold for the winter. And like a lot of these three third year stands, like just decimated them. So. Yeah. Yeah. To your point though, about keeping multiple faces open, we, we, I get that a lot, especially the way we're trying to position Brown Midrib in, in diets today. Um, how to where to slot brown midrib in, brown midrib into the diet where it's really going to be beneficial and where not to use it when it's going to just simply reduce feed efficiency. And uh, so I get that pushback a lot. But even with grasses that are high in yeast, uh, just like uh, high moisture corn or corn silage, that you can have heating problems. But if somebody's using a good Buchner inoculant. I don't see why you can't have multiple faces open and not have to take off very much per day. At least that's been my experience. And that's been my experience in environments like Iowa here, um, where during the middle of the summer, you know, we'll, I, I had a customer that, uh, you know, put up earlids for the first time and was concerned about it. And they used an, uh, a Buchner inoculant. And I mean, we were only taking off, you know, about four inches a day off that face and it stayed perfectly ice cold the whole summer long. So I, I think 
I, what I run into more uh, is a situation where we just don't have the footprint on some of the smaller dairies to have multiple bunkers mm -hmm. and, and, and bags laying around in that. But um, I think if you're using a good product, you can get away with multiple faces and not have to take off, you know, a foot or two a day. No, um, it, it's, I mean, if you're running a facer, I think, and having a Buckner inoculant and you've got densities up into the high teens, I don't, I think you can do it. It's, yeah. But if you're yep. lacking, I think, on one of those, whether, you know, if you're scraping it away with a bucket or something like that, or, you know, maybe you didn't get it packed as well as you'd liked last fall, I think you can yep. run into troubles there. But um, it's funny you mentioned the the mold and yeast thing, because I think we're seeing a lot of it this year. Um, we're seeing some depressed butter fats. And, and, you know, if you look at the diets, you know, fiber's good, starch isn't overly high, uh, things like that. And we just can't quite get our finger on it and then so i started doing some mold and yeast testing on some high moisture corn and things like that and seeing like crazy high numbers like i did a high moisture corn and it was like 50 million yeah and yeah so <laughs> and and they were feeding the high moisture corn during the during the summer during the spring and summer they're feeding it right now and it's like well yeah i think we got to get some dry corn in here and just kind of either dilute it or take it right out so and Keith, I'll be honest with you. I don't think it has anything to do with the yeast or the molds. No. And the, no. And I think the trend that we're seeing is when we have these pretty high corn silage diets and the guys today are doing, and gals, are doing a fantastic job of kernel processing, we know that ruminal starch availability is very high. And what we have seen a lot is advocating that you can you can complement that high corn silage diet. And when I say high, I'm talking, you know, maybe 60 pounds wet corn silage. Um, there are obviously guys feeding a lot more than that, but let's just say at that level. We're finding that if we can be out of the high moisture corn or earlage by late February, early March and shift into dry corn, we sail right through the heat of the summer and everything and maintain butter fat really nicely. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just that starch overload that we have from combining the highly fermentable starch and corn silage along with highly fermentable starch and, and high moisture corn. So um, guys that have had problems in the past. Now, Lehman Kung tried to do some, did some work looking at, you know, yeast and what kind of effect they can have on components in that. And that really didn't really show that much. But I, I think we're, we're just like what you said, that we got to get some dry corn in there. And I don't think it's dry corn is because we're getting rid of the yeast or any molds that might be going in. I think it's because we're just reducing the fermentability of the starch in the rumen. Because dry corn, if we grind it, you know, five, 600 microns, looks like pig feed, that escapes the rumen, moves out on the liquid phase of the rumen faster than it's being digested. So we're actually just shunting that starch into the, into the small intestines. And so, I, you know, we're still getting the same amount of energy in the cow, actually more because we don't have the gaseous losses. We do have some gaseous yeah. losses in the starch digestion, not as much as fiber, but we, there's still some. So I think that's kind of where what we've seen to be able to solve some of those butterfat depression problems we used to run into is in those diets where we, and we just love earlage, or I call it snaplage. We just love it. Yeah. Would that um, be what we call like a cob meal? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, because it's so cheap to put up. You know, you just put a corn head on the top and the front of the forage harvester and and go to town. You know, I mean, it's just fantastic. So it, you know, it is more expensive to 
to move to the dry corn for, for some of these larger dairies. Um, but I tell you, it's, we make up for it by just having, you know, better room and health and just shunting that starch now to the intestines. Now, if you don't have good kernel processing on your corn silage, that's not good because, well, we can pick that up in fecal starches. But um, so I think a lot of that is just looking at ruminal starch. Not that, not that there can't be issues with mycotoxins. There certainly can be. But I think sometimes we have a tendency to want to blame a lot of things on them. And I don't know. I've been doing this for over 40 years and, and I've troubleshot a lot of herds. And I would say that the amount of herds that really I felt there was really a mycotoxin problem were pretty few. Yeah. And I don't, I'm, I would agree with that. And I think that we're kind of cruising into a mycotoxin year here in Ontario, um, just with the kind of real drought stress through pollination. We've had a lot of foggy, wet, humid nights. Like when corn was pollinating, it was raining. It was perfect for that. Like we had moisture at pollination, but it was also wet for two weeks and kind of damp and humid and things like that. So I'm just, uh, I'm a bit concerned in certain areas in Ontario um, with toxins this year. And that's why I think where harvest timing is really important, you know, to be, we know that if, if we do a good job of, like you said before, packing uh, a facer and a good inoculant, um, it's only penicillium that can survive at a pH below, say, 3.8. That's the only micro, yeah. that's the only mold that can survive in silage. And, and none of the micro, none of the fungi can grow without air. So that was, that's where that facer and maintaining the integrity of the pack is, is so important. But, you know, 99% of the toxins in a well-managed pile or bunker or tower silo, or whatever, um, were produced in the field before it ever got in the silo. And then, you know, what I get, what I get upset by is some of these companies that say use a certain type of additive when you're making silage to help reduce that. Well, <clears throat> there's no additive in the world that's going to degrade those preformed toxins. So it's, no, it really goes back to just the harvest timing and good silage management. And then, you know, keeping oxygen away from the face as much as possible. They're penetrating into the face. But I know a lot of the labs, you know, like to put out a lot of information about it. And we do a lot of testing. But even the testing is really a crapshoot, if you well, think about it. I, I was going to ask you about that because, like, like if, if you do a good job of packing and, and getting the pH low and not allowing any air to get in there, and you're still testing for toxins. 2018, I think it was, we had a real bad jib problem. And we had corn coming off at 20 part per million, 15 part per million vomitoxin, cows cruise through. A couple years before that, we had an issue with toxins and I, I'm pretty sure it came from Dawn. And we had like two part per million and we seen way more effects on cows. So I, it, it just made me think like how is this stuff real? What is going on here? Like, why why does an 18 part per million not affect a cow, but a two part per million? It seems like it does. Well, those are work done in Canada showing that really high, high levels of DON. There are three different forms of DON, depending on how long it's been, the uh, organism has been metabolizing. But, you know, really high levels have no effect on on ruminants. Monogastrics, yes, but not, not ruminants. Yeah. But I think the issue is, <clears throat> is the fact that you know, we don't know how the combination of different mycotoxins played out. We have no no clue whatsoever because nobody, you know, nobody 
at the USDA or anywhere else has done work on, on this. I send my veterinarians to Europe to go to conferences on mycotoxins because that's the only place I think that's really doing some legitimate work and we kind of ignore it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, put a binding agent in it and, and hope for the best. In, in Europe, there's been a lot of really good work. And I think products that, you know, can degrade those toxins, uh, you know, in the TMR mixer and that, that, that have some benefit. But we just kind of buried our head in the sand and haven't really looked at it. But to me, I think it's just what else is in there. It's just like you go back to, you know, smut and things like that. Hopefully you guys don't have it up there yet, Keith, but uh, we're dealing with tar spot. Yeah, we're, we're just we're, starting to see it. Yeah, and, and I'm actually in, I'm actually in the hotbed where I am. It was the first place in Ontario where it was found on one of my friends' farms, and uh, so now like Omafra, which is our uh, ministry or like state department, yeah, is yeah. been doing some tests there. Like it's continuous corn on corn. Like they're trying some different things, some different fungicides and things like that here. Yeah, and uh, yeah, we're see it. We're starting to see it too. But, you know, th- that doesn't produce a toxin. But that doesn't say that the plant's under stress. There isn't something else in there or yeah. smut, you know, will not produce a toxin. So we say, you know, you got smutty corn, don't worry about it. But, you know, you just don't know what, you know, maybe very, very small levels of, of multiple different toxins can have a synergistic effect and, and be causing problems. And, and that's where it gets confusing. Like what you said, one year we can sail through it with high levels and next year lower levels. And we seem to have some, you know, breeding problems and some issues, but yeah, it's really, it's, it's really difficult to figure out. Is there any issues with feeding smutters? Is it just more of a optics thing? No, just optics and looks bad and blows black all over the chopper. And, but you know, you know, in uh, Mexico, it's eaten as a delicacy. Yeah. I was going to say that. Yeah. So, yeah. Do they have not, uh, by, not by you and me, but by some? No, <laughs> the the locals there. Um, do they have uh, any effect on um, fermentation? No. No. Okay. Yeah, it's just no. completely optics. What about tar spot? Like, I last year was the first year um, that I did see it in corn down, kind of at the mouth of Lake Erie or mouth of uh, the Detroit River, Lake Erie, down in Essex County, and uh, like. Like you look at the sample now and you can see it. It looks like somebody just put little polka dots on it with a Sharpie, but it doesn't seem to be no effect on feeding other than the fact that I think their corn silage may be a little bit lower in energy than what it would have been. They took it off maybe three weeks before they should have just because the tar spot had killed, started killing the plant and browning up the the stock. And yeah, Yeah, exactly. And I think then the fiber digestibility starts to go when a plant dies and the fungi kind of take over and, and can grow. So yeah, I agree with you. I don't think it'd have any effective fermentation. I was just sharing emails this morning about who's going to man our uh, pioneer booth at World Berry Expo. And I mean, brought back memories of last year. All we talked about for four days was tar spot mm-hmm. because in Southern Wisconsin, it came in, I mean, and it will, decimate i mean the plant will be dead in seven days uh if it's high enough and so i mean we've even back to the fungicide you know a healthy plant late season plant health is is so critical to to preventing all these issues and and i think you know the fungicide we we know that you know for a lot of the foliar diseases you know we've been satisfied with you know spraying maybe at uh at uh dark silk, you know, you know, somewhere in that right after tasseling phase. And, and then we've gotten enough residual to get us 
through the major period of time until we're going to harvest silage. But with tar spot, we're looking at a completely different approach to fungicides. You know, it's probably going to be one there at, at uh, you know, dark silk or uh, when the silk starts to die off at that point in time for fungicides for leaf diseases, the general leaf diseases, mm-hmm. northern and that sort of thing, northern leaf blight. Um, but then the second application may be necessary depending upon what we see for, for tar spot. Damon Smith at the University of Wisconsin is is my go-to person when it deals with looking at fungicides and, and how they work. In fact, I just shared some emails with him over the weekend um, about tar spot and some other things. So if, you're, if your listeners are looking for somebody to follow or to, I, uh, Damon Smith really does some really good work at University of Wisconsin. Yeah, I know. And it's it's so new here. And I've been trying to sound the alarm out it, about it because uh, I did see it last year and what it could do. So it's just like we're already in a in a year where we're short on feed. Like we got to do stuff, I think, as preventative to make sure that we can get that corn crop to finish because it like like we talked about earlier, it's our most important forage. This like corn corn season, like first cuts pretty critical. Like I want to make sure we get a first cut. At the, at the right time to make sure that we're kind of set up the subsequent cuts after that. But I would say for our lactating herds, like this is by far hands down the most important time of year um, is leading up into corn silage. So, well, we're, I think our, I, I'm seeing where use of fungicide on corn silage is pretty much routine today for a number of reasons. First of all, it's going to keep that plant healthier. It's going to, prevent some of our leaf diseases, it's going to widen that harvest window if that plant's healthier. You know, there, there's some some early research that we need to look at a lot more, but th- there may be an effect on just helping to improve not just the quality of the biomass in terms of digestibility of the stover, but maybe the quantity of it as well in a healthier plant. So there's, there's and that's really preliminary, just like one trial in Michigan showed that, but, you know, we, we want to look at it more that you know the the limitation for a lot of guys is just having the equipment or the helicopters or the planes to to apply it, mm-hmm. uh, or not having high boys to be able to apply it. But I tell you, it's it's kind of a routine. It, it, and I, I calculated out, it, you know, at least what we're spending on fungicides and application. Kyle's eating sixty pounds a day. It's about three cents a cow a day, you know, to have that uh, that treatment. So it, similar to say using an inoculant. Um, in terms of cents per cow per day and it's you know it's really really valuable as you say it's the most important forage crop for that lactating herd and and keeping it healthy is really important like can you prevent mycotoxins by doing fungicide that's some of the work that damon smith has done in wisconsin okay. showing that. yeah because it, it makes sense that you can just because if you're going to keep the plant healthier you're going to have less vectors for a disease that can help you know, exactly. bring toxins in or, or get infected by a, a fungal or whatever. Exactly. But, yep. Yeah. Um, I had an interesting thought too. Like you said that with the fungicide, you can open up the harvest window. Now I had heard, I'm not sure if I had heard you on the, like Iowa, does it Iowa state has a podcast now? Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. did. Yeah. I did one on corn salad. Yeah. <laughs> and they were talking yeah. about actually, uh, pushing the start, like if you have greener plant, you can actually let the milk line drop down and try and pack a little bit more starch into there. I wonder if you could kind of maybe talk about that. Yeah, it's so 
if the plant is healthy, I think, in, in, you know, maybe some of the lower leaves are, are dying off. But still, if the bulk of the plant's healthy, and, you know, the ear leaf is the primary leaf on the corn plant. You know, most of the photosynthate is produced by the ear leaf. That's why, you know, the leafy hybrids have never really taken off because those extra leaves above the ear really don't do a whole lot except shade the ear leaf, which we don't want to do. Yeah. So, um, the, you know, I, I think if the plant is healthy, we don't even recommend going out and doing burn downs anymore. In fact, I, I on social media, I, I just... I don't even respond to it anymore because I just don't have the time or I'm losing the energy to fight the battle. I don't know, but <laughs> people talking about needing a certain amount of moisture for fermentation. Um, I, these are people that must not know very much about silage fermentation because the organisms can, can ferment silage in a very broad moisture window from very dry, you know, to very wet silage. These organisms, I, I mean, and if you're using a, a purchased inoculum from a reputable company, they certainly can work in a very wide range of, of moisture. So, you know, in terms of doing burn downs to look at moisture, in my opinion, it's a total waste of time. I'm going to go out and look at those healthy fields and I'm going to break ears and I'm going to look at the kernel milk line and I'm going to try to shoot target for three quarter milk line. Mm -hmm. uh, you go to California, they go all the way to black layer because they've got such tall, healthy plants with so much biomass um, and their starch deficit uh, state. So, you know, they'll even go a little bit longer. The only thing that prevents that is custom cutters wanting to get in there early and get to through all their customers. Yeah. But yeah, I think, you know, shooting for that three quarter milk line is, is the sweet spot. And, you know, what happens in a lot of situations is it needs to be planning done keith up front um sitting down with the seed salesman and, and the custom cutter or, or the guy chopping for the farm or or the you know the son doing it or whatever is say okay how many acres can i plant a day how many acres can i harvest in a day uh and 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 look at do we need to spread maturities of our hybrids so that we can you know start with a shorter season hybrid and end up with a longer season hybrid depending on how many acres we're getting across um, and, and that's really important to be able to try to do that. Now, if the plant is diseased, if we have, you know, gray leaf spot, northern, if we have tar spot, anything like that, then all bets are off. I mean, you know, Minor Institute's done some really nice work showing what happens to fiber digestibility when you start to have, in, including frost, uh, frosted corn, um, fungal growth that happens and what happens to fiber digestibility. It'll, it'll go down like a rock, but if the plant's healthy, we don't lose fiber digestibility in the corn plant like we do with legumes. That that mm -hmm. fiber digestibility stays pretty flat, and as long as it's flat and and we're you know we're laying down starch, that's a good thing. You know, every day you lay and and uh, who was, um, where was it? I think it was yeah. I think Joe Lauer, I think just summarized. Yeah, Joe Lauer, uh, Wisconsin, just summarized some data that I saw that, that corresponded to what we've been saying for a long time is that a, a point of uh, dry matter related to uh, half a point of starch. So, and, and I think for, I, I think it can be a little higher than that. Usually we say, you know, in, in a typical dry down, you'll see about a point per day drying down, but you'll see, you know, upwards of a point, you know, at least I've seen it many times upwards of a, three quarters of a full point of starch laid down. So it's really starch deposition that dries down 
a healthy plant. It's not the fact that we're losing moisture from the from the stalk or the leaves. It's the starch deposition. So, you know, when people talk about looking at moisture in the plant, I'm thinking, well, you know, if it's going, you know, if the moisture is going down, it's because the starch is going up. Isn't that the reason we raise corn? Yeah. So, you know, don't get so focused on the moisture. Let's look at the best indicator of starch deposition, and that's kernel milk line. Well, I know, and I kind of learned this from uh, beef producers because they're typically later on their corn silage than what we would be with dairy. I think we really push dairy to get into that. We're so concerned about moisture. And I think if we're feeding higher corn silage, maybe we should be more concerned about starch deposition. Like you said, like healthy plant, if it's still nice and green, you know, it's not going to get that dry. And and from, from what you're saying is that with the moisture, like if it's the moisture increases, we lose digestibility. Now, does that happen all the time or just no, in certain no, circumstances? No. Well, I mean, if the, we don't lose digestibility. So okay. I think across, yeah. across the normal harvest window from, you know, early dent to black layer, <clears throat> if that plant is green and healthy, fiber digestibility hardly, hardly drops at all. Yeah. Um, many, it's when many it's many diseased, <laughs> right? It's when it's or, diseased. Or yep. froze. Or frozen. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, no, I think um, many of your listeners might, I mean, because we've given away a couple hundred thousand of them, but the Pioneer Silage Zone Manual, we have a really nice chart in there that Dr. Fred Owens, who used to work for us, who retired probably five, six years ago, but did a lit search, um, uh, mining our database, mining University of Wisconsin's database, and, uh, and a couple laboratories here data and, and looked at what was the NDFD um, across a wide range of, of, uh, of dry matters. And if the plants were healthy, we tried to sort this out by, you know, plots where the, there was disease problems versus healthy plants. Fiber just, digestibility just did not drop. I mean, yeah, if you look at the graph, and I think it contained 127,000 uh, samples, if you look at the fiber digestibility, it, it dropped two points, and that is not significant. Unless you see a four to five point drop in fiber digestibility, that's within the error of the method. People get all excited and they look at a plot when something, a hybrid is, you know, one or two points lower in, in fiber digestibility. It's just not meaningful. And it's certainly not meaningful from a biological standpoint when you put that into a diet with other forage sources uh, and feeding a cow. So, you know, really there's no real significant decline in fiber digestibility unless the plant is diseased. So I, I was back in the Northeast, uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago and talking to one of our sales reps and, and it was a young lady who just does a fantastic job and she's running all over the countryside, chopping plants and burning, you know, putting them through a chipper shredder and putting them through a microwave. And I said, it's just a total waste of time. She goes, well, I could do a lot more determining sequencing of fields for my customers. If I could just go out and do the kernel milk line, I go, that's what you need to be doing. Mm -hmm. Now, if the plant, if the field looks, disease that's dying there's some problems man it's okay to, to take a whole plant look at the moisture but again even that it, it, i have a slide i show in a lot of my presentations of droughted corn back in 2012 when we had a heck of a drought and um it was from colorado and this these plants were droughted and they were hailed on there was absolutely no ear development you know it looked like broomsticks standing in the field and our research station out in LaSalle, Colorado, took some of those samples and did that. Chipper shredded them up, burned them down. One was 68% moisture. The other one was 70% moisture because of all, <laughs> even though there was, the leaves were all dried up, 
but there's so much moisture contained in that stalk and there was no ear development to dry it down. So this whole notion that we need to be looking at moisture. Now, then you'll hear people say, well, you got to have good compaction and you need moisture for compaction. Actually, the data from the U.S. Dairy Forage Research Center, Rich Muck, shows just the opposite. You'll actually compact to a greater density with drier material. I know that doesn't make it doesn't make any common sense, but you actually will crush cells and pack it there. The problem is compaction doesn't relate to porosity. What mm-hmm. we're trying to do in silage, we measure porosity, uh, we measure density, but we're really in terms of, of keeping oxygen out of that pit, we want to lower the porosity. So that's where moisture plays an effect, is actually filling in the air spaces so that we don't have as much porosity mm-hmm. to oxygen penetrating into the pit. But actually creating compaction, you can compact, compact dry material tighter, but it's more porous because of the air spaces. So bottom line is today, the way our dairymen and and beef producers have the ability to pack, understand how to pack bunkers and and piles. Obviously we got a power silo, gravity's doing the compaction for us, but our bunkers and piles, guys do such a great job today. And then if they're using a Buchner inoculant on top of it, even if there was a little bit of air penetration, yeast aren't going to grow because the Buchner I will inhibit that. So I, I just, I think moisture is overrated today and we got to get beyond it. Well, we've talked about it for how long, right? Like it's just yeah. old habits die hard. Exactly. Yep. 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 Dogmas. In fact, <laughs> and the PhD student, uh, orals that I sat in on last week up at Iowa state, um, that was one of the things that came up during his discussion with all the professors is, you know, we all have certain dogmas that we have bought into that, you know, that's the way we were taught. This is what our professors taught us. And that's kind of what we, you know, what we run with. But uh, hopefully, you know, there's a lot of good new work that's come out there. Just, you know, just like even using fungicides is almost a routine management practice today. Yeah. You know, that w- a dogma in the old days is you, you didn't spend that kind of money on a plant. Well, you it's know, just silage uh, corn. Exactly. You're just going to feed it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, especially if you get into something like brown midrib, you know, which yeah. Uh, yeah. isn't as tolerant to drought, uh, um, getting better, but still, you know, it doesn't have quite the agronomic strength that that uh, standard corn silage does. And, and you know, a, a product like that, that you're spending more for the seed up front and, and it's a little more risky from an agronomic perspective, mm-hmm. you know, people I think have seen, yeah, wow, that makes a difference there. With BMR, we're still going to be looking at the same thing too. Like you're going to be watching milk line more than plant moisture. Cause I know the thing is, is always, oh, it's wetter, it's wetter, it's wetter. It just like, it has to look drier before you harvest it, but it's all still, like you said, starch deposition and it's, it's yeah. your moisture sink. You know, yeah. I think about it, you, you think about it from a Haywood's perspective. You and I grew up, thinking that, you know, you want to get haylage cut at about uh, 30% dry matter, 70% moisture. You know, we're going to save all the leaves. It's going to pack really well. That's beautiful haylage. And it was really producers that led us to the down the path that, no, that isn't such great haylage. First of all, there's a plenty of moisture in there. So clostridia have a high uh, water uh, demand. Um, and we can get a lot of clostridial growth in that kind of uh, haylage. And they taught us, you know, hey, if we get a little drier and drier and drier, today, most of the haylage that I see that I really like to have in the diet, we're talking it's, you know, 50 to 55% moisture. 
but yet we get it packed yeah. really well in a bunker. Okay, yeah. well, if we can pack haylage at 55% moisture in a bunker, we sure as heck can pack drier corn silage in a bunker because we've also got that starch, which is very dense, which helps contribute to that reducing porosity. I've seen a trend towards drier haylage. You know, yeah. kind of no, a 40, 40% dry matter is kind of the the minimum. It just seems to to feed out nicer. Now, I'm under the pression, or, or I guess my antiquated thought on it was, is that if you have the haylage that wet that you're trying to ferment it, first off, it's got a lot of buffers in it. So your potassiums and, and calciums, and it doesn't have the sugar like a grass does. So I wonder about if it's able to get good bacteria established to get the ph down compared to because what i'm seeing is i've done seen some winter forages some triticales and things like that oats come off at 22 percent dry matter and they ferment fine but they're also three times as high as in sugar well if it's drier and you're low in sugars it's going to take less sugars to stabilize the crop so a wetter crop always yeah. takes more sugar so if it's wetter it ferments longer because the water is diluting the acid so you don't lower okay. the ph yeah. so the drier stuff actually is, is will it's just like high moisture corn we call high moisture corn high moisture but it's really not high moisture it's it's high moisture compared to dry corn but it's really yeah. quite dry <laughs> yeah and and if you think about high moisture corn um that ferments just nicely you know i mean and, and there's hardly any sugars in high moisture corn uh, it's almost all starches. In fact, people don't realize high moisture corn, the only place it ferments is at the very tip of the kernel. That's the only place there's adequate moisture and just a little bit of sugar to ferment it. But we don't need to drop the pH very low in high moisture corn because it's such a dry crop in, in general. Yeah. So it just it really needs to just have a little bit of acid in it and it, it pretty much holds it. Now, again, back to the Buchnerai, especially with what corn's worth today, if guys are putting up high moisture corn, they definitely need to put a buchner on it because high moisture corn, especially if it's been stressed at all, is just loaded with yeast. Cumberland Valley's got a really nice chart that I use uh, that Ralph Ward gave me that um, shows the you know the high levels of of yeast on on corn silage, high moisture corn, hardly any yeast at all on alfalfa. But there's also a lot of yeast on cereals and and, and mm -hmm. grasses as well. So. Um, but yeah, drier usually ferments easier. Yeah. And I, like I said earlier in the podcast, talking about that high moisture corn sample, like, I don't know if I've ever seen one that high in yeast and it's yeah. coming out of a, it's coming out of a certain colored silo. I don't want to say it, but, and it's whole yeah. going in there. So it's just a tougher, it's a tougher product to begin with. Right. Like there's so much porosity, like you said before with the, yep. with the yep. silage pack, like there's a ton of porosity there. Exactly. So, in fact, I just looked up a paper this morning to send it to my European colleagues. We know that during the fermentation process, starch digestibility changes. So it drifts up over time. That's why we feed corn silage in the fall, new crop corn silage, say, and that corn silage starch digestibility is drifting up over time. And if we couple that with high moisture corn, that starch digestibility is drifting mm -hmm. up over time. Back to my original point, why we kind of take the high moisture or earlage snaplage out of the diet as we get into spring because both of these have increased over time due to the fermentation process and and then we get starch overload so we shift to dry corn what made me think about that when you said that keith is that's one thing high moisture corn 
in a sealed unit, like a sealed store or a harvest store, um, where it goes in whole, that does not change over time. We did some interesting work over that. So that's a more oh, really? stable feed, if you will, because the pericarp has not been, uh, has not been, is still has integrity. So there's really very little activity of the microbial organisms during the fermentation process oh, to solubilize. The yeah, they can't solubilize the Z and proteins. That's why, that's why starch digestibility drifts up in high moisture corn and corn silage kernels is because we're processing the kernels in corn silage and in high moisture corn. And so you, we splayed open these starch granules. Microbial activity is solubilizing the Z and protein. The Z and protein is covering all the starch granules. That's Mother Nature's way of protecting the starch from water. But the bacterial action during fermentation, over time, solubilize away that soluble, that uh, Z and protein. Now the rumen bugs can get really rapid access to the starch granules, and that's why it drifts up over time. But in, in sealed units where we're putting it in whole, first of all, the fermentation is, is very minimal, and there's really not that access to the, to the zeon and starch granules for microbial action. So that, and I've done some work, I've tested coming out of a harvester all winter long, um, every couple of weeks, and then run a seven-hour ruminal starch digestion on that. It didn't change. Yeah. So actually feeding, feeding, feeding high moisture corn out of a harvester, probably you don't need to switch to dry corn because it really hasn't increased in start ruminal starch availability all that much over storage like high yeah. moisture corn would. Yeah. But then can you run into more storage issues? Like Possibly, if it's not sealed yep. correctly, right? Possibly. Like, yep. If yeah. breather bags aren't working right, if you know, yeah. if, you know there's a lot of issues. Yep. Yeah. And then the other thing too, like, can you get that inoculated? Like you're probably going to um, want to lean towards the Buckner eye too, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, you can mount an applicator, right? The blower, there's no reason you can't do that. I mean, it's, yeah. it will still help. It'll still help inhibit the yeast that are there. I mean, and it'll still ferment with at right at the very tip, but not as much as if we grind it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the other thing I got, I was thinking about too, is like back to kind of into the corn silage, uh, realm of things we're looking at, um, I think some pretty highly digestible stuff. Should we be looking at, you know, are we going to high chop this year or are we going to change our chop length on, on the plant to try and slow that down? Like, like what's, what's Bill's thoughts on a kind of drought stress crop year? Yeah, I would never high chop a drought stress crop because, First of all, the fiber digestibility is going to be very high. And secondly, we need the tonnage. Yeah, so, that's, that's, that's the big one. So we get a lot of, like, back to dogmas. Every year I read this stuff about you got to high chop uh, droughted corn silage because you've got to uh, leave the nitrates that are in the lower internodes. You've got to leave those nitrates, you know, in the field so they're not causing a problem. You know, it. That's it certainly is true that if we've got mama cows grazing stalks, we need to be testing those stalks for nitrates. Um, but if we're putting it in a silo and we are fermenting that crop and we need the tonnage because because of a drought and shorter plants, like you said, Keith, um, no, I, I'd chop it as absolutely as low as I possibly could because fermentation is going to degrade the nitrates in half anyways. And that's going to be diluted again when we put it into the into the diet with the other forages. So, you know, I've been doing this a long time and I've never in a dairy cow seen 
nitrate issues. In fact, that was a question that I asked at the, at the PhD uh, orals a little bit about nitrates. And one of the veterinarians on the committee also, I, he, and he's as old as I am. I go, you ever seen a nitrate problem in dairy cows? He goes, no. Um, yeah. So, I, you know, I would say the length of chop thing is, is interesting, you know. Um, the Minor Institute, again, has done a um, – Rick, Rick Grant has done a great job there. And um, I gave a talk at Western States this last year on corn silage. That's the that's last big talk I'm doing uh, in my career. I'm only doing podcasts from now on. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> um, I'm, not, I'm not going to any of these big talks anymore. I'm done with that. But uh, um, I, I ran my uh, – presentation by Rick because I, I think a lot of them and, and, and respect them. And I said, hey, is, this is what I'm going to talk about at Western States on corn silage. Is there anything that you would add or, or change? And he goes, no, I think you, he sent me an email a couple of days later. I think he got it. He said, the only thing is, is the length of chop. And he shared the data that I had not seen. But th they got some really good work about if we chop it longer than 22 millimeters, we are having no effect on buffering the rumen, none at all. But what we are doing is slowing down intake of cows because they'll chew to a certain particle size. So, you know, a lot of us uh, got carried away when shredlage came out and, and some of the work that Randy Shaver showed that, you know, you could chop out to 30 millimeters or longer. And uh, cows were not sorting uh, the diet or anything, but, you know, thinking, well, it'll help stimulate cud chewing and, and buffer that room. And, well, Rick's done some really good work on that. And, and his contention is, he would not chop any longer than 22 millimeters uh, because it's going to have really no effect on increasing the buffering in the rumen, but it's going to limit, it's going to increase the time it takes cows to eat. And yeah. most of our dairies were overcrowded anyways. And, uh, and we just certainly don't need that. So yeah, I've, that's, and so I added that to my talk and I, and I've added to everything I've done since and training our folks uh, at Pioneer and, and talking to, uh, customers and that is that you know i wouldn't go out to the and even the guys that have shredlage um i've talked to roger olson the guy who really developed shredlage he was one of my students when i was a professor at uw river falls and and roger said even the guys with shredlage are not probably chopping much longer than 26 millimeters so you know for i think you probably see it too 19 millimeters three quarters of an inch is kind of the sweet yeah. spot for most people that's kind of the standard well, um, I don't, and I think going out a little bit longer can can have some of a positive effect, but I don't think I'd go much below longer than 22, 24 per Rick's data. It's funny because we had a, uh, I had a group of producers from Quebec come down, and they specifically wanted to look at some shredlage units, and so, anyways, I've got a few farms that uh, that are doing it, and their mind was blown because they were still under the impression that it should have been, you know. 30 millimeters and, and the and the and the and the person from the the chopper company that was trying to sell them the chopper was telling them all this stuff and we're like guys like no like our most of our shredlage here either we're doing shredlage or we're doing um roll offsets so 50 percent offset on on each roll in the processor um is what a lot of producers are doing and like we're still i don't usually have guys go over 20 mils so three quarters of an inch yeah yeah that's like that's a 17 spot. to 20 17 to 20 i find is kind of the sweet spot and um i think 
it, a lot of it depends on how well it's getting processed too. Exactly. Exactly. And, That's, you know, a lot of guys are running triplets rolls just because they're super rolls and there's a lot of other bells and whistles that come with it. Like, you know, oilers on the bearings and other things like that, that I don't pay much attention to, but, uh, guys will run those just because, you know, they just do such a great job of processing. And then, you know, now there's, Claw owns the patent to Shredledge, but there's a lot of other knockoff units out there that, and, and the secret to Shredledge, I think, wasn't so much the double cut roll, the Lauren rolls, but I think it was, that may have had some effect, but I think more of the effect was right out of the gate, they had a 50% differential on them because it was <laughs> built a lot stronger. And today, um, almost all the, yeah. you know, if you if you guys, you, you know, if you get from Horning or Shear or anybody, they've got roles that they've designed that will have that 50% differential, which is really good. One of the interesting, I had a conversation the other day about down the panhandle, people looking at um, Ford Sorghum, uh, uh, you know, because they're just running out of water down there. But one of the issues um, is, you know, can, can Ford Sorghum displace corn silage in some of these uh, really water deficit areas? One of the real issues is the fact that the rolls today have a hard time crushing those berries. So theoretically okay. on paper, you may look at the starch content in Ford Sorghum and look at the biomass yield and say, hey, that looks pretty good. But when you put that into a diet, recognizing that it's pretty darn hard to get those berries crushed and they tend to go right through and the fecal starches therefore are high, you know, there's still a little bit of a limitation with that, but that's just something that's kind of popped up on my, my radar um, um, in places like the Panhandle that are really struggling. And then you look at you look at roller mills that have to have more teeth per inch and that sort of thing in those in those markets. In fact, I had them on my list of things to do here is to get a hold of Roger Olson and because I know that um, Shredledge uh, was looking at some rolls to specifically designed for for uh, sorghum and i don't know really mm -hmm. where they where they are now like are they doing they're doing the sorghum as a as a grain starch crop then like they're not no, doing harvesting the whole thing harvesting yeah. uh as silage corn as yeah. forage yeah 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 and then you kind of briefly talked about nitrates so from what i gathered like we don't really have to worry about them in a dairy situation like i know it's a question we get every year Every year, I think it's the same answer is like, you don't got to worry about it unless like, even with like, if you say it's drought stressed all summer, you get two inches of rain right before you're going to chop, like, it's probably not going to mobilize that much up into the plant, is it? No, but, and, and I don't think, again, the fermentation process will degrade it in half. So if you're 40,000 or 4,000 parts per million after it's fermented, um, you know, it's going to be 2,000 parts per million. And then you're going to, you know, dilution is a solution. It's going to be diluted in the diet and you're going to get it down. And even Dr. Fred Owens, who used to work for us, who was a professor emeritus from Oklahoma State, um, first paper I ever heard Fred give was at dairy science meetings. And he gave a very interesting paper on nitrates in, in beef cattle. Um, and even if you adapt them to it somewhat slowly, the rumen has the ability to to adapt to high levels. So, and hopefully we're not running out of old crop and going right into new crop anyways. Hopefully we're a little bit of a transition period. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think it's, you know, people can, can test it, send it in, doesn't cost very much to get it tested. You know, it's 10 bucks or something. I mean, it doesn't hurt to 
have it tested, but um, I did see, Keith, I did see something on social media the other day. It was a bag of corn silage, and it was just completely orange, all in the front of the bag and all on the grass <laughs> in front of it, and that's the nitrous oxide. So yeah. that was ga- that was gassing off. So I, I saved that saved that picture. And I'll put it in my powerpoints uh, because it, it shows it. Yeah, that's now it, the problem is that the gas it can kill you. So it's, yeah. it's being reduced, but it's getting into a noxious form. So if guys are feeding out of tower silos in a feed room, you got to be dang careful because that stuff is heavier than air and it'll come down the chute. And it's it's I saw something the other day. Some company uh, was building tower silos, and they talked about having a separate ladder at the top so somebody could get in and level it off. And I thought, oh, God, it reminded me of being a kid. But uh, I thought, man, you want to be careful if it's droughted corn silage, don't walk in there and level them off the top of a tower silo because that, that gas can really get you. And you, you'll even see that in bunkers or piles. You'll see a, a dead pigeon or a dead mouse or something down at the bottom trying to when they're trying mm-hmm. to get some grain because that, that gas is heavier than air and, and it, it can be a problem even even there for cats or dogs that kind of a thing but i don't think it's a feeding problem unless if you're going to graze stalks then it's an issue yeah because then well there's no dilution to that right yep yep and no ferment no fermentation process that happened yeah okay yeah okay. yep um and then the last thing i kind of wanted like we've covered you know chopping packing all that other stuff now i want to kind of cover cover covering it's one of those things like if you're talking about reducing porosity in the pile you know i've seen enough walls that are pitted so like producers should they be doing like a vapor barrier all the way around or just on top should they be doing sidewall plastic um like even just like top cover plastic on the sidewalls to keep kind of moisture and, and kind yeah. of seal that up like yeah like what are what are your thoughts on that stuff yeah, in fact, in our Pioneer Silage Zone manual, I have a picture of a of a high moisture corn pit here in Iowa. That series of pictures how to do it, and I label it making a bag out of a bunker. And I think it's just yeah, it makes a lot of sense, even if it's not pitted. Um, you know, put normal plastic down the walls. Well, actually, so that we don't rip the plastic, we actually put uh, drainage tile on the top of the wall so that uh, when we put the plastic over it, we're not ripping the plastic, you know, put plastic down the wall, stabilize it with a little bit of feed just to hold it. And then it goes over the sides, fill it, use oxygen barrier to film just on the top and then lap that plastic over and, 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 and fill it. So, and, and it just makes perfect feed. And the other thing is in environments like where you and I live, um, if we, then if we have any snow or rain that melts, it's going to go down between the wall and the plastic. And if we've got the right slope to the pit, it's going to yeah. come out. It's never going to touch the feed. And so, you know, you always see, you always see, you know, a little bit lower compaction density next to the wall because people are afraid to get the tractor tire right next to there and compress it the way we'd like to have it. Um, and, and then you get water running in there and water running in there. If you get snow or melt off and it comes <coughs> off with plastic and down, um, and it gets into the silage, it'll wash away the lactic acid. In fact, listeriosis, um, circling disease that we have always thought about, you know, we see in sheep. Well, I finally had my first case about six or seven years ago 
uh, a really well-managed small feed yard here in central Iowa <clears throat> was having about five or six uh, steers every day start circling and then die. Um, and um, so <clears throat> the the daughter of the of the farmer is actually a veterinarian. So she did some testing thinking it was probably listeriosis and it was. And uh, I went there and we isolated. They, they had a bunker built into a hillside and uh, the water was running down the hill and they didn't have any plastic down the walls or the earthen walls or anything. Water was running down the way it was sloped, running into that silage and just washing all the acid out. Well, the listeria then was growing and then if, you know, a cow gets a, you know, gets any kind of injury in her mouth or anything like that, that listeria gets in the bloodstream and, and that goes to the brain. And that's a, that's a big problem. So we actually saw that, that, you know, that, that that's where the listeria was growing is where there was no lactic acid and where the mm -hmm. water was washed out. So that's another reason, you know, make a bag out of a bunker. And, and it just is. a Now, guys say, well, yeah, it's a pain in the butt to do. I'm going to rip that plastic when I'm packing and filling that bunker. Yeah, you're going to rip it every once in a while. But in the general, you're going to have most of it's going to be protected very well. And then I'm not I'm not a big believer of tire to tire either. Um, I, it's just not required. Um, you know, it's a pain in the butt. It's, you know, I like to use pea gravel bags or, or tires, but I put them in strips. You, you don't really need tire to tire to tire to tire. You know, um, especially if you're using oxygen barrier foam, the, the tires are are not creating any kind of compaction. The tires are just there to hold the plastic down. Yeah. So if you have a strip, you know, depending how much you're taking off, how much your plastic you're cutting off at a time, you know, that's about how where I have my strips. You know, rather than having to have tire to tire. And yeah. the most important thing is, even if you don't like to use uh, pea gravel bags, at least buy enough pea gravel bags to put on the very face of the of the pile a drive over pile or bunker so that we don't get air billowing underneath that the front of the plastic you know even when you've got tire to tire those pea gravel bags just work a lot better to to be able to seal that front edge of the plastic and, and that and that's why i like for oxygen barrier film i like the two-step approach i like to put the film down and then normal six mil ag plastic there are companies and i know it's a lot easier there are companies, I, I know there's a company here in Iowa, Raven Industries, that makes a product where the oxygen barrier film is embedded into, into the plastic and, and it's got a cord woven through the plastic. It's very tough and it's a lot easier and it's a good product. But I still kind of like the two-step approach because if then any air does get underneath that front, that top layer of plastic, at least it's not billowing down into it because of the yeah. oxygen barrier film. Yeah, and you see a lot of producers, will, uh, they'll put dirt like on the front, like on the leading edge of the yeah. plastic, they'll just take buckets yeah. of dirt and dump it there. Yep, that works. Yep, sealed to up. seal to seal that yep. initially. Yep, that works very yep. well. And then I guess the last thing I want to talk about is safety. The fall, like I know everybody says, oh, the spring's real busy. I think the fall is busier. I think we start now, you know, doing fourth cut hay, and then it turns into silage, and then we're doing high moisture corn or earlage, and then we're soybeans, and we're doing manure and working ground like it doesn't seem like it stops till november december um so i just uh yeah. i really yeah. just like we've had some farm accidents here in the last little bit in ontario and uh it's just sad sad to hear and i, I think it's really tough um for families and things like that and everybody's just everybody's pushed to the edge now and uh we've i don't know what it's like in the u.s but like we have a 
huge labor shortage. And so everybody's just trying to do more and more and more and people get tired and dehydrated and they're not eating right. And yeah, it's just uh, sad to read about it on social media every day or every couple of days. Yeah. Interesting. You bring that up because, you know, I agree. It's, and I got thinking about when you, you know, when you uh, move that plastic and that, you know, that big bunker, you know, 30 feet in the air, and you got somebody up there cutting plastic back and that stuff can cave down and they can fall, mm-hmm. you know, there's the same kind of harnesses that are used when guys are building, doing roofing work. You know, I'm seeing a lot of dairies are having their employees wear that harness that's tethered to the back just with a simple stake. And then, uh, and I know a dairy in Wisconsin, Alpha Lawn, that had uh, saved two people from falling off the face of a very large drive over pile because it caught them or they would have, you know, they would have landed. And, you know, I think of all the great work that Keith Bolson, rest in peace, uh, did to make us sensitive to, you know, he was, he was amazing for, uh, for silage safety because he was, uh, he was the, he was the advocate for it. He was the real, the real person pushing to make sure everybody got home at the end of the day. People don't, I mean, I think, I think a lot of younger people, in this industry, know Keith Bolson from his great safety work, um, but I don't know if they realize what great silage work he did. In terms of, mm-hmm. you know, we know, I mean, and and especially if you're from the east, you, you may not know of Keith. The only reason I know of Keith is because about half the people that I work with in silage here at Pioneer are K Staters, and they yeah, all he's at Keith. Kansas State, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and they, they yeah. all had Keith as uh, as a professor. In fact, the guy who hired me to, to pioneer, uh, Dr. Steve Soderlund, is one of Keith's students. And, uh, you know, I, I, I thought I knew everything about silage uh, coming from New York and then Wisconsin. But when I got to Iowa and I ran into all these K-Staters, I realized, wow, I mean, the work that Keith did, uh, just phenomenal work in terms of, you know, what the feeding value is on, you know, the top three feet of, of uh, silage. You know, most, most of the spoilage is going to happen in the top three feet. And that's that's back to the beef guys, uh, Keith. We got to do a job, convince those guys to do a little bit better job. They don't realize the losses that they're incurring. I mean, there's some guys that do a fantastic job, but there's, I think there's more beef guys than there are dairy guys that need to be educated in what those losses can be. That, that's one thing. Can I just take a second to talk about yep. dry matter loss? Because um, yeah. this, this is a big point. We, we use the term shrink in the industry. You know, what's the shrink of your pit? Um but if you look at dry matter loss, I ask a lot of big dairies, you know, what do you think the loss is in that pile over there? And they'll say, well, I'd say maybe six to seven percent. And he, here's why they say that. It's certainly more than that. But here's why they say that. They weigh everything in. Everything comes across the scale. They know the tonnage that went in. They weigh everything out. Goes into their TMR mixer. They've got a feed tracker. They're weighing it all out. They're looking at those two numbers. And saying the difference in that is dry matter loss, it is shrink. It's not. Because during the fermentation process, when sugars are oxidized, 60% of the weight, 60% of the mass remains as water. Mm-hmm. Silage always comes out of a pit, a silo, a bag, anything. Silage Wetter. always comes out wetter than it went in. And the worse the fermentation, the wetter it comes out. Mm-hmm. Because you're using more sugars to to fuel that fermentation and you get more water 
produce. So dry matter loss, you can, and I, again, I have a chart in, in our silage manual, uh, some, some work that was done at the University of Wisconsin that shows, you know, if somebody thinks they have a shrink loss of seven or 8%, the actual dry matter loss is closer to 15%. Oh, really? So, yeah. So it's, it's really, really important that we, you know, do a good job. You started off perfect, you know, pack it right. Um, use a good product, pack it right and use a, a facer. Those are the three key things. And then we talked about covering. Um, well, but the people, the people are diluting themselves a little bit and especially, and then the other thing about dry matter loss is what you lose is only the goodies. You constantly I was going to bring that up. Yeah. And so you got to value shrink loss. I, I still use the term shrink. I got to stop that. I'm too much of a farm boy. Um, to, to replace the dry matter loss in silages, you have to replace it with an equal energy source that you lost. And that means corn grain. You can't yeah, put a dollar value on corn silage on it because we got to put the goodies back in there. We need exactly. the energy. We need those. Yeah. We need the sugars and starches and that kind of yep. stuff. Like, yep. So you got the, the dry matter loss has to be replaced by cornmeal. Mm-hmm. At, at whatever I think that's, that's, a, for. that's where it gets really costly because we're looking at, we just talked about it last week in a webinar, you know, we're looking at corn, ground corn at 370 Canadian for a metric ton. Wow. So like it's, it's, it's costly enough. So. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's where investment in a, a, a research proven inoculant, investment in oxygen barrier film, investment in a facer, um, you know, investment in plastic down the sides. That's where all that pays off because what you had to replace it with is really expensive today. Yeah. And your inventory, like you're just going to have less inventory. Like you're going to run out yep. a month before you kind of anticipated it. So it's one of those things that I'm an advocate about. I guess I should stop using the word shrink too and start talking about trimatter loss, but I guess we could talk about shrink when it comes to ingredients and stuff we're bringing on the farm too, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yep, that's, uh, yeah, I'm trying to make that distinction between what we think of as shrink and what we what is really true dry matter loss. And I, you know, I forgot most of the chemistry and biochemistry I learned, to be honest with you, Keith, but I do know that, uh, um, you know, 60% of that mass remains as, as water when you oxidize sugars. And, and that's what we're weighing out. We're weighing out water. And we're diluting ourselves that we're weighing out silage. Yeah. And I know it's a, it's a tough one to measure, but so everybody has these ideas. Oh, I, I don't have that much. Well, I think if you look at the, the work that the universities have done on it and kind of look at what's going on on the farm, it's it's very costly and i know land is expensive fertilizer is expensive seeds expensive herbicide fungicide like there's a ton of costs that line up with the cost production on corn did you really have to bring up that seed was expensive did you have to bring that up? <laughs> well i have to i have to blame somebody for something because it's always feed price it's always feed price or feed cost uh, yeah i'm blaming but, uh, you guys i'm yeah. blaming you guys <laughs> don't get a cheap well, shot in, we'll, the, in this, we'll push in this the, podcast here man. yeah but I, I think uh, I've got a farm going through the exercise of doing, uh, they're looking at feeding their neighbor. So they're going to go through and do a real cost production on what it costs them to produce forage. And when you start adding it up, it's a lot. And then the other thing about is expensive about feeding cows is running a mixer. 
or a truck or a tractor and a tub or a self-propelled like there's a real cost to that too so it's just kind of funny like you don't think about it because there's not a we're not doing it like i'm not giving bill five dollars during this exchange but all this all this money exchange happened all the way through the year and it it really just it's funny how much it adds up and then it just really it really puts an impact or brings into perspective i guess what the cost of dry matter loss is because yeah i had a nutritionist you know we always and in our where you and i are from the northeast and that it's forages are still probably the the cheapest diet you know higher forage inclusion rate usually makes sense but i had a nutritionist tell me one time that you know bill that's not the case in every portion of the united states he goes forages are very expensive they're very expensive for our large dairies to truck long distances um he said you know that's why we're feeding a lot more you know co-products commodity feeds yeah. um because they're just a lot cheaper than forages so if we in california yeah. if we can we can buy almond hulls, uh, right? You know, we have that is in the diet as much as we can because that's going to re- displace some forage that are very, very expensive. So, yeah, you're, you're right. I think when you – and I, I try to look up the budgets. Iowa State has a nice uh, – Ag Econ Department has nice budgets on producing corn silage and corn grain and that. I try to look those up to remind myself exactly, you know, you know, how much is invested in it. It's, it's, well, to give you an idea, down the panhandle of Texas right now, corn silage, wet corn silage out of the field before not including the harvest cost is 110 bucks a ton. Dry, that's as fed, right? That's as fed. That's, that's wet feed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that's yeah, before that's, harvest. That's before that's that, standing in the field. And that's US dollar and short ton. Yes. So if and I converted I that in, to Canadian, we're probably looking at $150. Yep. I was in Washington yeah. State. They're uh, they're over eighty dollars a ton. So yeah, you well, start to figure the yeah. yields and. Well, the other thing too, like I know seeing it this year when second and third cut weren't very good, it's costing. So a producer has to pay to have a custom chopper come in. It's probably fifteen hundred dollars an hour to have them on the farm by time if they got to pay for cut, pack, merge, yep. uh, chop, and haul. It really adds up. Right. And uh, when you're getting a half a ton or a quarter a ton of dry matter per acre, right. <laughs> it really makes that feed expensive. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah, I hear you. Was there any other kind of final thoughts that you had with uh, with what producers can do here this fall to make sure that their silage harvest is safe and successful? I just think you know they got to get out in in look at the corn they got to get out you know you and i as nutritionists we know we have to walk the strings to know what's going on they have to get out in the field or else or you know whoever they have charged at their operation to to be focused on the agronomy side of it they got to walk field see what's going on today most companies you know will fly drones we can tell where problems are Mm -hmm. um but i think they got to understand what the what is the status of the crop and you know look at harvest timing like we talked about the other thing i'm a big believer is that you know i said that i think fiber digestibility is going to be going to be higher uh in this in any corn that was had a dry early part of the growing season um but i think we 
at least in the models that I use to, to balance and troubleshoot diets, I have to know the rates of digestion. And I'm just not convinced that when we send a sample into the lab that we are using the regression equations that either Dave Mertens or Mike Van Amberg or anybody developed that that's truly giving us the rate of digestion because mm -hmm. I, I see when we measure it in laboratory methods like Fermentrix uh, and things like that, um, they, they just differ so much. I, which one do I use? I mean, yeah. they don't come any smarter than Mike Van Amberg or Dave Mertens, but, you know, I have a measured value that neither one of, agrees with neither one of them, and they don't agree with each other. So what do I put into the model to balance these diets? So I think we have to – I think analysis. To me, today, the lack – where we're lacking is – we can grow the crop and we can harvest it at the right time, but do we know how to feed it? You know, mm -hmm. and, and, and especially on our big dairies, can we wait two months to figure out how to feed this stuff? Well, we've lost a lot of income in two months on these dairies. So I'm a big believer in, in more sophisticated uh, analysis so that I know what the, you know, not with the 30 hour NDFD models don't use that number anyways. I need to know what the rate of digestion is. Yep. And, and I and I'm I'm a big believer, you know, in and now, you know, we can send samples to, you know, Rock River, Dairyland Labs, Cumberland Valley. We can send samples to any lab here in, in the United States and, and get for metrics results. So I'm, I'm a big believer in having those rates because, again, I've, I've, I've struggled too much get, getting the diet dialed in and. We can't afford that anymore. So I think that's our, to me, that's our Achilles heel today is really knowing how this stuff feeds. Yeah. It takes some time to get like as somebody that's doing nutrition, take some time. Like you got to try it. Okay. This is our response. Let's, let's do a tweak here, a tweak there, but then you got to wait two weeks and it's. Yeah. 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 I guess it's all about input information. If we're going to input better information into these models, we're going to get a better result. And yeah. the labs do a wonderful job, but we're still learning every day too right so, exactly exactly yeah all right keith well hey good to spend some time with you again yeah no i really appreciate you coming on the podcast again bill um we had some real good response last year and i thought it was a kind of a no-brainer to get you get you back out in in front of people i know like you mentioned before you aren't going to do any big talks anymore but it's uh we do really appreciate you having uh having some time cut out to uh, come on the podcast yeah i've got two new Young, I just hired a, about four years ago, I hired a veterinarian, Adam Kroll, from, he was on staff at Iowa State and has a lot of practical experience. And then in January, I hired a guy named Nelson Lobos, who has a PhD under Glenn Broderick uh, at the U.S. Dairy Forage Research Center. So I've got two young guys on the team there. They're a lot smarter than I am, Keith. I'm kind of phasing out a little bit. You're a good but mentor. My, but, my, <laughs> but my golf game is getting better, Keith. Oh, Much that's better. good. That's all. That's yeah. really what's important. So, <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks again, Bill. We'll, all uh, right. We'll touch base. Thanks again. Yeah. Bye. Good talking to you, Keith. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the dairy team at Trout Nutrition Canada and our SureGain dealer partners. If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast player and please leave us a review. If you'd like more information about today's discussions, please reach out. We have left our contact information in the show notes. I would also like to extend a special thanks to our sound engineer, Daniel Noguera.